Time for some more Bible hacking. Grace and peace, y'all. Greg here again. Today, we're going to do a quick Bible hack on false teachers. And I'm calling this Defense Against the Dark Arts. And it is super important. So you're going to see, we're going to dive into scripture. And as you're going to see, today, this is timely for today. It was timely since Jesus was on the earth but it is very timely for today as well. Bible hacking, let's get it. promised, um, I want to jump into some um, Bible hacking. Um, this has been on my mind for quite a long while, um, you know, various aspects of it. As a matter of fact, to be, you know, just very blunt, um, a lot of um, like the, the whole channel and why I'm even doing this is tied to this very topic. I firmly believe that we have a large amount, and in my opinion, increasing amount of false teachers and, and false doctrine that have infiltrated the church. And I'm not talking about that have that might infiltrate or past tense long years ago. I'm talking about right now it's infiltrated the church. I, I, I'm certain I'm going to do a separate probably series of videos on the false teachings that have infiltrated. But today we're going to talk about how, what is the guaranteed way to combat this? Let's dive right in. So um, let's go here. We're gonna jump straight into the scripture, the text. So um, again, let's start with um, 2 Peter 2.1. Um, the rise and fall of false teachers. And this is Peter, and I, I mentioned before, um, in uh, 22 or so of the 27 books of the New Testament, there are topics of false teachers, like whole collections on this is how you catch them, this is how you look out for them, this is why you got to be careful with them, this is the risk that they bring. Second Peter is another one of those. Let's read it. But there were also false teach prophets among the people, um, and there were, and there, as there will be false teachers among you also, who will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master, Yahweh, who brought them. The, thus bringing on themselves swift destruction. And this is the key. And many will follow in their licentious ways because of whom the truth will be reviled or hated. And again, key, timely for today. And in greediness, they will exploit you with false words. So let's just let that soak in for a minute. Greediness allows a false teacher to exploit us. Whose greediness? We would tend to look at this and say, oh, it's the greediness of the false teacher who's taking advantage of us and, you know, doing bad things with money or, you know, tricking us or, or being fraudulent with money. You know, we've all heard of the various scandals, you know, over the 80s and 70s and, and even now nowadays. That's not only what the text is saying. The text is saying, and I repeat, Oops, sorry. Like I said, I'm doing this alone, so sometimes you get those weird little glitches. Sorry. Um, the text shows 
Many will follow their licentious ways because of whom the way of truth will be hated and in greediness they will exploit you. Whose greediness? The greediness is both ours as well as their own. So it is not just their greediness, it is also our greediness. And I heard an excellent um, explanation of this and please don't tune out. We're going to talk about how to combat this and I think it's a very straightforward way to combat it. Don't be offended and if you're offended, I pray that maybe you know, you'll know you allow God to, to, to speak to you through maybe this very video because we all sin and come short, we've all messed up. Um, so don't let, if, 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 if this points too hard of a light back on you, don't let it you know overcome you and click away from the video. Please tune in and, and take a, 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 a grasp of this. Like I said, I recently heard it talk. The reason why many of us are attracted, not just um, we, we incidentally happen upon some bad teaching, but we're attracted to it, it is because of internal greed. So when they preach a bad, a, a false message that's decidedly not in the gospel, like all things work together for good, which means everything we ask for, we should be getting. That's very contra gospel. Like most of the New Testament church fathers, Peter, Paul, they were martyred and spent most of their life in prison. Jesus himself was tortured to death in Mark and all the gospels when Jesus says, and take up your, you want to be like me? You want to follow me? Take up your cross. To us, that sounds like, oh, you know, a religious thing, take up your cross. But to them, the context of the, the ancient Jew that was the audience, cross was one thing. And a cross was a Roman torture device. It would be tantamount to me saying today, you want to follow me? Find your electric chair and walk with it because you're going to need it because it's going to be used on you. That's what Jesus was saying. He never promised that this life would be easy. He promised that we would overcome. But we'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. So um, the false teachers take advantage of our own greed where we want, oh, I, I would like to be a millionaire and I want everything to work out and I want the Mercedes Benz and I want the this and the that. So we become receptive to another gospel, and this is for the gospel because it's not the actual gospel, that makes us feel that if we do X, Y, Z, we'll get everything we want. That is contra gospel. And how do we combat that? We combat that in a very simple way. Let's climb in a little bit deeper. So next one. Um, the way we combat it is by not just casually reading the word, but doing what we're doing right now, hacking the word, digging into the word to understand it. The problem is we are so used to a surface level of, of, of teaching, you know, where our pastors, and I'm not beefing with any pastors, I'm just saying we have access today to, to deeper um, 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 content that it is your responsibility to get your hands on it. So you personally need to be studying the word. And I'm gonna give you some tips to study it. Why? Because the word is the absolute guaranteed way to help us detect 
false teaching as well as combat and correct false teaching. The word is the only way to do that, which I believe is why nowadays there is so much false teaching that has infiltrated the church because we are not well versed in the word. So when we hear little scriptures taken out of context, it's very easy for us to take it, allow it to be out of context because we've never really dug into what the rest of that scripture was. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples right now. And I'm going to give you a simple four-step methodology. Um, and maybe methodology is too big a word, but I'll give you four simple steps that you should be doing with every time you read the Bible. First one, and it's, it, it boils down to four questions. And the, the, I have a nice little system for remembering it. It's called STOP. And um, the way we are going to describe that is with every scripture you read, every time you sit to read the Bible, ask yourself four questions. One, stop. So S, what is the situation of this verse? Two, what type of literature? So T, type of literature is this? Why? Because the Bible has multiple types of literature. Some of it is poetry. Some of it is gospel. Some of it is historical. Some of it is prophecy. Some of it is apocalyptic, end times, you know, talking about visions and dreams. Some of it is myth, like the creation myth. And don't misunderstand me. The Bible is inerrant. The Bible is 100% accurate, zero mistakes in it. Myth does not equal fiction. I'm not saying myth is make-believe, but myth is, according to Oxford's, a description of something typically very old historical, with supernatural aspects to it. So Genesis 1, 2, 3, where God, Yahweh, builds the whole earth, that is, it's written in a form of mythology. It is not, I'm going to leave it at that for now, one of these days we'll get deeper into Genesis, but you need to be aware of what you're reading, the type of material, so that you can interpret it accurately. You can't interpret something that's poetry, with a literal lens, because the poetry was metaphorical. They were drawing examples. Same way you can't take one of Jesus's parables and literally translate it. So that's um, type of literature. Next one was situation. Might have gone out of sequence there. Either way, situation. What was happening in this context? And that is so critical, because if we mess up on situation, that is the one of the number one things of taking text out of context. I'll give you a really good example of that in a minute. Third one is object. Who is this about? If this is about a specific historical event or a specific time, it is irresponsible of us to try to blanket apply that to ourselves. And then P, um, is this prescriptive or is this descriptive? For example, Solomon had hundreds of wives, and he, um, you know, those wives um, caused him to worship false idols, false gods. Is that the Bible prescribing to us we should have a thousand wives? No, it's not. It's very obviously not. It's describing what happened. We need to be aware when we read a verse, is this something that's just being described or reported on, or is this the Bible telling us this is what we should be doing? Prescriptive versus descriptive. So I'll recap. S, situation. What's happening here? What's the context? T, what type of literature is it? Because according to the type of literature, we need to interpret it accordingly. O, who object? 
who is this about? And P, is it prescriptive or descriptive? Those four things, every time you read a scripture, ask those four questions so that every time your pastor reads your scripture, every uh, message you get in church or podcast or wherever, and they're quoting a scripture, ask those questions. And at the very minimum, dig into the text itself to see, okay, what is this? So give you some examples of when we don't do those types of things, how it can go wrong. I'll give you a couple of them, a very, very popular one that I like a lot. Uh, Matthew 24, this is a, a, a rapture um, type um, description here, boom. So let's switch back to the text. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 40, um, talks, you know, most people treat this like it is a, a, a prophecy talking about the rapture. Um, so you hear this, like I've, I, I, I'm certain most of you have heard it this way. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. And there will be two women grinding at the mill, and one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on alert, for you do not know the day your Lord is coming. So it's talking about the Lord coming, and one will be taken and one will be left. I'm willing to bet a nickel that when you heard this, the first thing that came to your mind is, hey, this is probably talking about the rapture because one will be taken and one will be left. And who will be raptured? The church, Christians, believers, however you want to phrase it, they will be raptured and the other one will be left. Now, look how lack of context allows you to completely flip this on its air. Because if we simply scroll up, we see, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels, nor the heaven of the Son, except the Father alone. Just as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, this is key, as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not know anything until the flood came and took them all away. So also... The coming of the Son of Man will be. And there will be two men in the field, and one will be taken away, and one will be left. Now I ask you to go back to the Noah example, because the, 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 in Matthew, we're told what the context is. It's going to be just as in the days of Noah, coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before, they were eating and drinking, and until the day they entered into the ark, and they did not know anything until the flood came, and swept them all away. So the coming of the Son of Man will be. Who is being taken away? Not the Christians. Not the believers. Not the church. Whoever's being taken away in, I'm not commenting right now on whether there's going to be a rapture, when there's going to be a rapture, pre-trib, mill-trib, post-trib, middle, I'm not talking about that. I am talking about Matthew 24, this series of verses. You cannot read these verses in context and not see that who is being taken away here, they're being taken away to be judged, just like in the days of Noah. Noah wasn't taken away. Noah was kept safe. Who was swept away? The people that were living in sin and those that did not hear. So this specific example cannot be about the rapture 
in the removing of God's church out of the situation. Unless you think God's church is being removed to be judged, then we got to have a different conversation. So that's one example of where if you look at the situation, if you ask those four questions, situation, type of literature, object, prescriptive or descriptive, you can see the object here is the people that are being judged. You can see the situation is like the days of Noah, who was being judged in Noah, people that were sinful. That is what this is about. So that's one super, super simple um, example. Let's jump up and do another one. Um, give you a one that I really, 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 really like a lot. This is one of my all-time favorites. Um, and this is, um, and when we walk through this, I think it's going to be mind-blowing. Um, this is Jeremiah 29, 11. Let me get it pulled up here. Um, and I got a couple others, but I'm going to, um, you know, defer from those. Um, here we go. Not this one. Um, not this one. Not that one. There we go. Matter? Yeah, I'm going to do this one. So <clears throat> Jeremiah 29, 11, probably all time favorite of Christians, you know, writing birthday cards for, I know the plans that I have concerning you declares Yahweh plans for prosperity and not for harm to give you a future and a hope. Sounds amazing. Doesn't it? I know like no disrespect to my mom. I literally got this from my mom as a young man posted up on the fridge or, you know, it was in a, a book divider and I, I literally stuck it in my book and when I was having a tough time in college, I would lean on this, etc., etc. And what I need, look, the fact that God is there to help us doesn't change. What I'm saying is this verse, the one that we're looking at, taken out of context, this is not the verse to um, go to, 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 to look at this with. Why? Because if you take this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, and you're willing to apply this blindly to ourselves, then you got to take just as equally Jeremiah 44, 11. Same context. And therefore says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, look, I am determined to bring disaster on you and even to exterminate all of Judah. Merry Christmas. Love you, Grandma. Like, you can't, the context is the same. This is a, a, a prophet prophesying to an exiled people. And then there were two different exiles. One was an exile in Syria, Persia. I don't remember exactly where it was. One was an exile in Egypt. And this, so when you ask the question, the STOP, what's the situation? This is a situation of a prophet speaking to 3,000 or so BC Israelites. What and they are in exile. What's the type of literature? This is prophecy. What's the object? The object is those Israelites. And what is this prescriptive or descriptive? This is descriptive. The, the, the prophecy describing what God was saying to those Israelites. We don't know that God has plans for us to prosper us and not harm us. Paul was harmed. Peter, rumor has it, legend has it, was sawn in half. You think that was harmful to him? Paul being locked up in prison. Do you think that was harmful to him? Jesus being crucified. Well, Jesus, most of you will say, yeah, but he rose from the dead. No problem. So let's take Jesus out of it. 
John the Beloved ended up exiled on an island where he wrote Revelation. Like, was that profitable? It was not profitable because not everything in this life ends in our profit. Some things end bad for us in this life. I'll give you proof of that. This is what Jesus um, taught when he was on earth. Uh, there. No, sorry, this is the wrong one. Hold on, hold on, hold on. There. There we go. These are the two that I wanted. This is what Jesus um, spoke when he was here. I've said all these things to you so that in me you may have peace. This is Jesus speaking, John 17. John 16, 33, sorry. In the world you have affliction, but have courage, because I have conquered the world. Not in this world you're gonna have profit. Not in this world you're gonna have prosperity. Not in this world everything's gonna be awesome. In this world you will have affliction. But take heart, be courageous, because I, Jesus, have overcome this world. That's what we've been promised. Sometimes we might do good. Sometimes we may have affliction. I'll give you another one that's mysteriously been missing from you know, sermons that we see nowadays. First um, Timothy 6.4. This is another one talking about false teachers. FYI. Constant wrangling by people of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who consider godliness to be a means of gain. See what they consider to be a means of gain? Godliness. And what does, how, how did Paul tell Timothy to recognize those people or what, how did he classify them? They are people of deprived mind and deprived of the truth because they believe godliness is a means to gain. But godliness with contentment is a great means of gain. In other words, we got to learn to be, make do with whatever it is God has given us. We have to learn, and I'll wrap up on this, to read the scriptures in context. We, we cannot allow little bits and pieces of scriptures to be chopped up and taken out of context because it makes us susceptible to bad teaching. One of the worst things you can do, it's warned against in scripture, is to add to scripture. It's called eisegesis. Taking yourself and inserting you in scripture. Taking your heart, your desires, your dreams, and make, twisting the scripture to say that. That is not the purpose of scripture at all. And when we don't know the context of all scripture, because we haven't done the S-T-O-P, what's the, uh, the scenario? What type of literature is it? Who's the object? And is this prescriptive or descriptive? Because we haven't done that to every single verse and every single scripture, people can trick us. People can mislead us. We can be misled even if the pastor, the teacher, whoever, the podcast person that you're speaking to isn't purposefully doing it. Our lack of familiarity with the whole meta-narrative of the text allows us to fall victim to these types of misinterpretations. This is why I call the channel Bible Hacking, and this is why every time you hear me speak, it's going to be from the text, because there is plenty of motivational speakers out there. 
but not enough of us Christians are studying the word. I hope this helped. hope this was beneficial to you. Um, please feel free to like, subscribe, share it with your friends if it ministered to you. Um, comment if you have specific questions, topics, scriptures you'd like to unpack together. Probably do a live one of these days soon um, so where we could live engage and you know actually do Q&A. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, this is Greg. Um, it's been a pleasure Bible hacking with you today. I'm out. <laughs>